Well, here we are at the third Sunday of Advent, known as Rejoice Sunday, Caldere Sunday in the Latin. Um, the third Sunday of Advent, we use the rose color candle to indicate that our waiting is almost over. And we're rejoicing. And our readings today talk all about joy and rejoicing. We're going to look at a couple different things. We're going to look at uh, God's joy, for indeed God rejoices in the readings today. John's joy, John the Baptist, rejoicing in his place as the forerunner of Jesus. And our joy, our joy as being part of the church and the hope that we cling to in Christ. I want to start, however, by asking you, about joy. It's not a word we use too much now, right? We have some derivations. We talk about enjoying something, literally having joy from something, right? Although I think we use that a little bit loosely now. We talk about rejoicing once in a while, but that's more formal, as I looked up in the dictionary this week. And I want to ask you to think about a time that you were full of joy. A time when you were full of joy. Can you think about that for a moment? What did that look like? What did it feel like? Is it clear in your mind? I think that true times of joy are actually rare. They're actually rare. I wish they weren't, but I think they are. And as I think at, about those times of joy in my life, there are several, but a lot of them come from my childhood. And I also think that that's not coincidental because I think that joy has a childlikeness in it. There's a childlike quality in joy of unrestrained exuberance, right? Of just pouring out yourself in response to a situation with pure joy. Earlier this year, my father asked me, um, he said, you know, now that you're a father, are there things in your faith that you understand better from the perspective of God. And I thought about it, and there were a few things. But now that Bridget's gotten a little bit older, one of the things that I experience in her is the joy that, it ha that I have as her father because of her joy, right? Because of her joy, I rejoice. And I'd never experienced that quite that way before. Uh, well, I'll come in, and uh, I think Leah preps her a little bit, but I'll take it anyway. And, you know, she says, Papa's home. And Bridget, you hear these feet as she comes through the kitchen and meets me at the doorway. And that joy of just seeing me and her arms outstretched, right? And I think about that, and I think about how God's our Father, and His joy in our joy is like that in some way, that we're like that little, um, almost, no, not quite, two-year-old, right? Um, reaching out our arms to him, and his joy is enhanced by our joy, because he chooses for it to be. I want to look at our first reading today, where we see God talk about his joy, which is really quite phenomenal, I think that God actually reveals this to us. 
So open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 65, verse 17, or look at the Scripture insert. Everything we're referencing today is pretty much on the Scripture insert. We look here at this passage, and I want to start actually at the end of the passage. You know, this is one of the tricks that you learn in in school when you're speed reading, right? That sometimes you can jump to the end of the chapter or the end of the paragraph and know what the rest of the paragraph's about. Well, it works in Scripture sometimes. Look at the end of the first passage. Verse 25, we read, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so that gives us a clue as to what is this about, right? What is Isaiah prophesying here? You know, prophecies can be complicated because sometimes a prophet is prophesying something that's immediately ahead of him you know, or a hundred years ahead of him. Sometimes, often, he's looking forward to Christ's incarnation, right? Christ's coming on the earth. But sometimes, the prophets are seeing way into the future. And this is that third type, right? How do we know that? Because of that last, um, that last uh, sentence, actually. It gives it away. Because we don't look around and we don't see the wolf and the lamb grazing together, right? Or the lion eating straw like the ox or the serpent eating dust, right? Now, granted, some of that is spiritual imagery and typography, or allegory, rather. But look at the final sentence. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's the kicker. As someone that reads scripture, hopefully this has shot up a flare or a flag in your mind. When you see the phrase, the, the, my holy mountain, when God talks about his holy mountain, mountains are really important in scripture. Just take a minute and think about it. What are some of the events that happen on mountains in scripture? It's where God talks to Moses, indeed. He gives him the Ten Commandments, right? What's that? The ark, yeah? The ark lands on a mountain, right? And so there's this new covenant. What else? That's good. I hadn't thought about that one, Barney. Abraham and Isaac, sure. Yeah, Abraham and Isaac, where um, Abraham almost offers Isaac as a sacrifice, and then God provides the sacrifice, right? course, a prefigurement of Christ. We read that on Good Friday every year. Yeah? The Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, not a trick one, right? (laughs) It's on the Mount. That's important. Yeah, what else? Transfiguration. Wow, you guys are good. Eight o'clock crowd is still asleep, I think. You guys, I I had to give them everything. You guys got all my examples. There's more. There's there's a ton of them. If you you look through Scripture, you'll see that mountains are really important. It's where God meets with His people, and it's also where God has communion. And by that I mean like, I mean the sacrament's important. I don't want to diminish that. The sacrament points to this. But to where God has eternal communion with His people. Okay? So we see that throughout Scripture, and so we see it here again. And in fact, Isaiah himself, earlier in this book, because this is the end of Isaiah, 
in Isaiah 25, he speaks of this holy mountain too. So I don't know if you want to look at this with me, but you know, you're welcome to look at Isaiah 25. This is verses 6 through 8, where we read, On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, on this mountain rather, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. It's one of the lessons that we read at Anglican funerals. Um, You'll hear this lesson read all the time. Why? Because we're looking forward to this holy mountain, to God taking away death itself, wiping away every tear, to the eternal communion with God. And so when Isaiah here returns to the theme of the mountain, he has this in mind, that God is speaking through Isaiah and saying, in the future, beyond the judgment, right? Because thus far in Advent we've talked about, and even before Advent, We've talked about God's judgment. We've talked about God's wrath. We've talked about God's justice. But now we're looking beyond that to the general resurrection, to beyond the general resurrection, to this holy mountain where we'll be with God forever in this communion. This is great anticipation that God gives to us, right? We're supposed to anticipate this with great joy, in fact. So now that we've read the end of the passage, flip with me back to the beginning of the passage. And we'll look at it from another angle. This is verse 17. The Lord is speaking through his prophet Isaiah, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever. In that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. And here's the kicker, right? God rejoices himself. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall I be heard, shall be heard in it, rather, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. Do you see what's the Lord saying here? He's looking at this holy mountain, this new creation. We've also talked about in the last few weeks about how this earth will melt away, will be wiped away, will be destroyed and dissolved, but we will continue on to the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what Isaiah is talking about here. So what in the world does this have to do with the New Testament passages, with John the Baptist and with Thessalonians? Well, this is meant to show God's people, both Old and New Testament, this anticipation of, with great joy and rejoicing of what is to come. It's to give us this assurance 
that like a great train or a great ship that gains momentum once it gets going, God's will will not be stopped. Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus' coming, knowing that when Jesus comes in his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, this train gets started and will continue on its way all the way to the holy mountain. And you and I get to be part of that. For we get to be part of this kingdom come, as God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the fullness of Jesus' return that will ultimately be culminated. And so our gospel passage today is John rejoicing at his connection in this, at his part to play. John rejoices at the fact that he's the forerunner, that he's come before the promised Christ, and that this process has started. Now look with me at at, uh, our gospel reading that Deacon Mark read for us today. John chapter 3. It's the first gospel reading. There was actually a choice this week in the lectionary. John chapter 3, verse 22. Here's what we read. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and they were, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And we'll stop there for the, for the moment. So what's going on here? Well, just to give you a little bit of background, we're jumping from Mark's gospel to John's gospel, right? And that should, number one, make us think, well, why are we doing that in the lectionary? And the reason is that this part of John's gospel actually occurs before any of the ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Okay? So... John is baptizing, Jesus has been baptized, but Jesus hasn't engaged in ministry yet in Mark's Gospel. And so here we jump to John, and we look at what's going on. D.A. Carson uh, points this out in his commentary. And John the Baptist is still baptizing, but so is Jesus through his disciples. Now, there's a lot going on in that. We're going to leave that aside for the moment, because... Um, that doesn't really fit the themes of Advent, but Jesus baptizing through his disciples is an important thing, so we'll just shelve that. But John's disciples come to John telling him that Jesus is baptizing, right? And what is their reaction to Jesus' disciples baptizing? What's, what's their reaction to it? Are they happy about it? Are they rejoicing at it? They're a little suspicious. What's that? They're threatened. Absolutely. Yeah, let's keep reading here. So, look what they say. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. What's the problem here? In their minds. I mean, it's somewhat admirable. They're loyal to their rabbi, right? Hey, he's, he, you, John, you started this thing, and now look, everybody's going over to that guy. 
to Jesus. What's up with that? Yeah, he's stealing his thunder. Look at John's reply in verse 27. John answered, first of all, he gives them a general principle, a good teaching. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So what's John, he's gently rebuffing them, notice, he's correcting them. What's he saying? He says, look, me being John the forerunner, being John the Baptist is not something that I have because of me. It's not something that I have because I'm such a great guy or have this special learning. It's something that's been given to me from heaven. It's a role that's been given to me from God. So, number one, that's a great principle, right? He puts them in their place here and says, look, we all have our place that God assigns to us. But then he goes on, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now this is great. So John moves on to say, look, it's never been all about me. I'm supposed to herald the way of the Messiah. And then he goes into this analogy, or yeah, this analogy, talking about a bridegroom and a best friend. So in Judean culture, like our culture today, there was this position of one being the best man. Have any of you ever been the best man? Or the maid or matron of honor? Right? If you do your job right as the best man or maid or matron of honor, do people take notice of you? No. No, you work. You go ahead of the bride and the, bride and the groom, and you make sure everything's going to be smooth, right? If, if something gets lost, you're on it. If somebody forgot something, you're driving across town to get it, right? Because it's all about the bride and the bridegroom. And you're there to serve and to smooth and to prepare. Now, I have to confess, I thought that I'd never get to be the best man at anybody's wedding because I was actually ordained so early before my siblings were married um, that uh, I was the clergyman always. Um, but my friend Jason Kleps actually asked me to be his best man um, and I got to experience this. But I got off easy because it was an out-of-town wedding. So I just had to show up and look nice and plan the bachelor party, but we were college friends so I could handle that. Anyway, being the best man is really important. But it's not the main thing. And John knows this. And so he sees himself as God has put him as the best man to Jesus who is the groom. Now, who is the bride? Who is the bride? This is a little harder. The people that are being baptized. The people that are being baptized. The those people that are entering into the church. You've heard this imagery before, right? The imagery of the church being the bride and Christ being the bridegroom, right? And so Jesus is spending time with the bride or the bride in potential. And John's saying, who am I to be envious of that or to interfere with that? Of course they're going to the, to the groom. Of course the bride is coming to the groom. That's 
what is, has been ordained to, to be. And in fact, not only is John the Baptist not resentful about it, but he's joyful about it. Here we circle back to that theme again. He's rejoicing in it. Look what he says. End of verse 29. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, you have to say, is, it, is that an easy thing to do? <laughs> to, to decrease yourself? To step out of the way? No, of course not. And yet, John the Baptist sees that because he realizes the great place of honor that he's been given in the church, in the kingdom. So, let's look at our joy now, because John says his joy is complete. It's, again, pointing us to joy. Our joy, too, should be complete, knowing that Jesus, the bridegroom, is returning to come and get us and take us to the holy mountain that Isaiah talks about forever. Look at uh, Psalm 126, the psalm appointed for today. This is a psalm to give voice to the church. We'll just look at a couple verses. Look at 2, 4, and 6. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us already, whereof we rejoice. Those who sow in tears shall reap with songs of joy. Do you see, sometimes it's difficult for us to see the joy or embrace the joy. The reality of God's holy mountain seems so distantly far away sometimes, and our troubles loom so close, so right in front of our face. We get short-sighted. We start just surviving. We lose our perspective on things. We can't see over the next hill, let alone to God's holy mountain. That's why St. Paul urges us to stick together as the church in such times. Because, friends, honestly, while it's possible to be joyful by yourself, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to rejoice and be joyful by yourself in isolation. Maybe some of you have experienced that. It's almost impossible to rejoice by yourself. And so we're first to stick with Him, to stick with God because he, of course, is the author of all joy and is more than enough. But second, it's important to stick with God's people, to stick with his church. Look at the Thessalonians reading. And if you were puzzled at first about what's in this reading, uh, so was I. But we get to it. We get to it. Let's start at the beginning. Verse, chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And finally we get to it, verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, why do we start at verse 12 and not verse 16? Now, this itself is a whole sermon, so I'm going to resist. But here's the cliff notes. Essentially, 
we have to do verses 12 through 15 in order to get verse 16 accomplished. Right? The hard work of making and being in community is what allows us to rejoice. And that's hard sometimes. How many of you like to be admonished? Yeah, I love to be admonished, right? I love it when the bishop calls me and says, Father Sean, you did this wrong and you need to change that. Yes, bishop? We don't like to be admonished. How many like it when I admonish you? I know you love it, right? But we do it because, and and it's done to us because we're loved, right? Go back to that analogy of being a child, right? Sometimes we need to be admonished. Sometimes we need to be encouraged, right? Sometimes we need to be strengthened because we're weak. Often, maybe all the time, we need to be patient. These are things that is required in community. And so St. Paul here is saying, look, in order for you to rejoice completely in community, you have to engage in the hard work of respecting your fellow workers, of respecting your leaders, of being at peace with one another, and of going out of your way to urge people. Sometimes when it's not comfortable, right? If they're being idle, you've got to say, hey, get off your keister, Right? Or if they're weak, you have to say, come along and spend some time with them and say, look, I know you're going through a hard time right now. I'm, I'm here for you. But we get to verse 16 through that. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. There's another key point, right? Because God needs us to be you know, completely attached to Him, right? To be in a prayerful attitude towards Him. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And look at verse 23. Here's where we circle around to the Advent theme. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your Holy Spirit and may your whole spirit rather and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So do you see, God is, uh, St. Paul rather, is saying God is coming again. And here's how we rejoice in the meantime. Here's how we rejoice in the meantime. And yet it is a command. It is a command. Rejoice. It's an imperative. Things like resentfulness and all those other things get in the way. They get in the way of rejoicing. They get in the way of joy. So, what is all of this to us? To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. What's that mean for us? It's how we prepare for the shortcoming of Jesus. Look back. At 17b. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So look, the will of God is done perfectly on His holy mountain. And so this will of God can be known and can be experienced and engaged in here, in this world. 
In us is the Holy Spirit, and therefore part of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus comes again, we can be sure that He will collect us and take us from this world, which will be demolished, to that holy mountain as His bride, where we will live with Him in joy completely forever, in communion with Him completely forever. Remember what Isaiah says, because Isaiah is the one that paints this picture back again at verse 18. What does this look like? He says, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And God himself then says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. I myself will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So do you see, friends, it's all about joy today. It's all about rejoicing today. It's about God rejoicing. It's about us rejoicing in what God's done. And then it's about God rejoicing again in what He's accomplished in us and how we will rejoice together forever. That's your destiny. That's my destiny. That's what we're called to do by the groom. Let us rejoice always and long for this day of unceasing rejoicing the joy of God, the joy of the prophets of the saints, our joy will be complete and we shall be like those who dream. For indeed, the Lord has done great things for us already and will do great things for us to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.